Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther with Curtis McGiffin and Jim Petrosky. And this week, we want to talk about another article that has recently come out in the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs, which is the United States Air Force's journal, their professional journal focused on the Indo-Pacific. And there was a commentary in the recent edition of Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs that was titled, What Would Victory Against China Look Like? It was by Major David Ganey. And essentially, it was sort of a quick, so it was, you know, it was a commentary, so it wasn't as long as is a normal a normal article. But what uh, Ganey does is he looks at China, where it is now, and he, he makes a couple of points about what is China's, essentially, their reason for being. And the main thing that he says, and, and I'll quote from the article, he says, by establishing their raison d'etre as the redemption of China's bygone glory, the CCP has erected formidable barriers against yielding or capitulating to foreign demands due to the domestic ramifications such actions would entail. So if the reason for being of the CCP, and the CCP, of course, is China, and their whole point for being and their point of legitimacy is that we, the CCP, have restored China to its former glory and if that were to ever fail, then that would put the regime at risk. And as he goes on to say, the parallels such weakness would draw to the late Qing dynasty's shortcomings undermine the entirety of the CCP's narrative and invite challenges. So, of course, for Xi Jinping, what he wants to do is prevent that from ever happening. And this is sort of one of the ways, one of the bits of leverage that the United States has is that it wants to to try to prevent, you know, an attack on the CCP's legitimacy. And so then he goes on to sort of finish out his argument. And he says, dismantling the CCP's foundational arguments for governance might present an off-ramp in any prospective conflict as it could incentivize the Chinese population and military to deflect blame for failure onto ineffective leadership, thereby granting a new regime the means to do it, to de-escalate. So therefore, if things start going badly for China, potentially like prior to a conflict over Taiwan with the United States, that this would, you know, historically when a Chinese, you know, when a, a dynasty would fall, you know, they would say, well, you've lost the mandate of heaven. And therefore, you know, whoever the new dynasty was would say, well, we, we now have the mandate of heaven. You obviously were bad. You weren't living ethically. You weren't meeting your expectations. And therefore, that's why you've been toppled. And so we're we're the new ones that, 
you know, are going to fulfill that mandate of heaven. And so, you know, that's what the CCP has been relying on these past few, you know, almost hundred years. Well, I guess it has been a hundred years is that they have the mandate of heaven. And so for the United States, and this is sort of what I wanted to, to pose to you guys this is why I like the article was that it got me thinking about how would you want to try to defeat China without starting World War Three, And my thought was, and this sort of goes back to the original article, how do you undermine the confidence in the Chinese Communist Party as a ruling party that is bringing prosperity to the Chinese people who don't like a lot of what the CCP does, but they tolerate it because they've gone from poverty to prosperity. And I thought maybe you guys would have some additional insights or ideas. Well, thanks, Adam. Um, Jim, always good to see you. I would, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question, right? Because we're getting a little bit out of our nuclear deterrence realm here. But um, so let me uh, answer your question in this way. And, and I've been pretty vocal about this, I think, even in, in some past uh, podcast episodes. And that is, I, I think the number one thing is, is that we cannot, we can't continue to fund our adversary's economy. Um, I'm a firm believer that we've got to find a way to decouple as much as we can. Uh, when we In the Cold War, uh, America's trade with the Soviet Union was like 4%, maybe less than that even. It was pretty much relegated to wheat and food products. Um, for those of you of our listeners who are who are old enough to remember when they were kids in the 70s and 80s that it was a big deal to get American blue jeans in Russia uh, or music uh, or movies. That soft power that we had went a long way to, I think, eventually changing uh, the Soviets' perspective uh, from the individual because they wanted some of that, some of that democracy, some of that freedom some of that Western decadence. In China, it's not so much. They have it all. They have everything they want, except maybe, you know, free and open internet. But the, re the reality here is, is that what they have is largely funded by American capital investment, if not Western capital investment. And it has gone a long way to funding China and its rise. And even today, we know that China is the second largest economy in the world. And if you include purchase power parity, it may be the largest economy in the world. Yet it is still thought of as an emerging market. And given all of the breaks and cuts, whether it be environmental concessions um, or other economic concessions. And as um, uh, has been written about in the past by Nadia Shadlow and, and others, when China was allowed into the World Trade Organization, in 2001, a week after 9-11, the hope was is that being in this World Trade Organization that somehow China would moderate, that it would become westernized. And in reality, it, it hasn't. It, it's used the World Trade Organization to fund its efforts of rejuvenation and its, its efforts to usurp the very international rules-based order that sort of let it in um, and 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 do its thing. And so while our economy grew at something like 35% uh, over that 
20 plus year time period, um, theirs grew uh, something like 350%. And, uh, and so they clearly benefited from this capital. And so if I wanted to uh, affect China without actually going to war, it would be you've got to find a way to cut the capital bloodline, if you will, that goes in to feed that, that feeds their economy that is um, largely based on Western money. Well, Curtis, uh, it sounds like a, a, a one-point thesis economy, right? So that's <laughs> well, I wanted to save some for, for you. I want to uh, say something for you. Oh, well, thank you for, for leaving me with something. So for those that know me, you know, this, this is like way on the fringes of my, uh, my uh, capabilities. But here we go. What would victory look like? First of all, let's not have conflict. So we reduce conflict. Okay. We open libraries. We all get to go to library. All the leadership reads to children at libraries. We all have a chicken in a pot. We all have free internet, free everything else. And all we have to do is go out and pick daisies all day and we'll be fine. We all get along. Oh, and the last thing is everyone learns calculus by the age of, I don't know, 10. Then we would have complete victory. I think that's happening. (laughs) And there we are. So we would get along. But but tongue in cheek, seriously. Um, what I think that we do have to learn, we, we do have to be able to get along. And when you entwine us, as Curtis started talking about with economy and with the global scale, it, we do have conflict and it's difficult to resolve those conflicts And the way you resolve the conflict. You have to have open communications, et cetera. But where do you leave that victory is depending on your viewpoint. And unfortunately we have two different viewpoints. China has a view of what the world should look like, and America has a a view of what the world looked like. And there's one common feature that I thought was interesting that, Adam, you brought up, and Curtis, you sort of hit on it, and that is that you said, well, China's got everything they want, except they've exchanged a little bit of freedom. And we see here in the United States, we sort of do the same thing. We have a country that's supposedly based on freedom, and we keep giving up freedom for stuff, for things, for capability. And it's an interesting view because you're going sort of both directions. And I believe victory in China has got to find a way to resolve that piece of the conflict, whether it's through economy, whether it's through leadership exchanges. Um, and, and I want to go back to Curtis's comment, you know, blue jeans in, in Russia, that was going to resolve any conflict with Russia. And we remember in 1990s, peace broke out all over and that really solved the problem, except guess what? We're back to where we were before. <laughs> It just seems to go back. And so I, I don't, yeah, I don't I have mean, any. So, so as I told the audience and everyone here, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask here. Cause I keep coming back to the same thing. There's always going to be conflict and we need to be poised in a position where when conflict breaks out, we can bring it back down to a level where we're not at war. And to me, when we're not at war, that's basically victory. Yeah. I guess uh, I would say that, you know, if it were me, I would start if I were the president of the United States. One of the th- first Adam, things I would do is for a five hundred one c three. You can't launch your campaign on this show. I just want to let you know. Okay, <laughs> I know where your aspirations lie, but I just wanted to announce that to our audience and make sure that the you know the people that you know f- see our funding and the IRS, etc. This is not a campaign start. But go ahead, Adam. <laughs> well, you know if. if what I would want to do is start undermining 
the legitimacy of the regime. And this is one reason I think he's, you know, he's spot on information warfare. So the Russians are really good at it. You know, we, we, we've had, you know, two election cycles where the Russians have tried to play a major influence in the American election. You know, if you go back to the 1970s, if you go back to the, the church committee, the United States used to be very good at influencing elections uh, in other countries. That was something that we used to do with, with great success. The problem is, is we're not engaging in information operations against adversary nations now. They do it to us. And so they look at the divisions in the United States and they say, this is wonderful. I mean, we're, they're going to be fighting each other instead of fighting us. And it, there comes a point at which I would try to turn the tables. You could try to turn the tables on the Russians. I would try to turn the tables on the Chinese and undermine the CCP's legitimacy because there's a lot to be undermined. Yes, they have you know brought some economic prosperity, but it's been but at once, a significant but, but cost. But once again, you can so, do that, but there'll it, still be conflict. It'll just go to another region. It'll go to another spot, right? I mean, that's my point. No, I mean, the simple... F- it, well, what you do is you, like Curtis said, you undermine, you undermine the Chinese economy. So when the economy starts to go down and then you ramp up your information warfare campaign and then you have the ability to start undermining the, you know, Chinese legitimacy and you do, there's lots of, this is a, you know, a tech thing. You know, one of the things that when Hillary Clinton was the secretary of state, you know, one of the things this, that the State Department was trying to do was to to get VPNs that could get past uh, the Great Firewall of China and allow the Chinese to, you know, get accurate information from the outside. So, you know, that's one of those things where we can where we have to under undermine the security state that the Chinese have been building that is designed to ensure that nobody criticizes the regime. And then we have to, so economic, economically undermine. If you go back to what Reagan did, one of the things president Reagan did is he would engage in specific, well, I guess you could call it monetary warfare where he would make the value of the Russian ruble fluctuate and then cause the ruble to crash. And he would do this to destabilize the economy. So it's time that, and then maybe it's time we start engaging in some of the same kind of espionage that the Chinese have been engaging. I mean, they're as technologically far along as they are because they've stolen a lot of our technology. So perhaps it's time to repay the favor and to essentially create a level of chaos in China that makes the Chinese people turn against the CCP. And we've seen 4,000, you know, riots and protests a year on average over the past decade or so. So there has been a lot of unrest, but it's time to really put our effort into ensuring that happens because the greatest fear of the Chinese is that the regime will collapse, the CCP will collapse. So if we can focus them internally, which is what they've done to us, then they will not be focused externally. And then we come in and we undermine the Belt and Road Initiative, and we engage in the kind of lawfare. I mean, they've been engaged in lawfare. 
They've, you know, they've manipulated the World Trade Organization. They violated. We need to demonstrate to the region and the world, and this also goes back to, you know, broadly, that we're a reliable partner such that they see the, the declining Chinese economy. They see the internal stability. They see the failure of Belt and Road and the abuse of the nations that are participating in it. And they say, we'll turn to the United States because the Chinese aren't what we thought they were going to be. And then you find, you know, groups in China that you can work with that create chaos in China. And then hopefully, eventually, you you know, you topple the regime. And regime change should be our our. But don't you, you think that produces gold? instability across the globe? Doesn't that? Well, in I, China, there's a lot of Chinese influence elsewhere, and so when you create instabilities, those secondary effects of instability occur elsewhere. So you know, I I, I look at a different end end game here. The objective is not to to bring people to a point where they're unstable, but they're stable in a way that you can work with them. And I see that as an approach that, you know, you want to have because we're never, you know, I'll go back to what I said earlier. We're always going to have conflict. We're going to have conflict with other people. You're never going to get rid of that. It's human nature. We have conflict with each other. I've, you know, I've been, I've been married 38 years now, almost said it 37. I'd have gotten in trouble 38 years now. And I'm going to tell you that there's conflict at times. That's human nature. So managing the conflict, I think, is more important than destroying one to the point where they don't, that you don't know what you have in the end. Thoughts? Well, let me add to this. Let me add to this. So I think um, uh, to Adam's point here, undermining the Belt and Road Initiative by exposing and um, uh, the debt trap and uh, getting nations to decouple themselves from the Chinese uh, as well is the way to uh, to defeat China without going to war. Uh, because, uh, as you said, that the most important thing to the CCP is the survival of the CCP. They are afraid um, of the Chinese people, you know, rising up if there's not five, six, seven percent GDP a year. And over the last year or two or three, they've not met those standards, those goals. Uh, and China is is in some real economic risk right now. And I think now is the time to to get in and get into these nations and ex- explain to them the 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 evils, if you will, of of doing business with China, and uh, and exposing those sorts of things. When I was teaching at the National War College. And I had a number of international students that uh, that were sort of in my portfolio, uh, especially the officers from the African nations. Um, I would hear from them all the time. Uh, where are the Americans? Um, specifically, I had an Ethiopian officer, uh, the colonel in the Ethiopian army, you know, sort of pull me aside and go, you know, if America would just come and and because the Chinese are everywhere. And they're building big, beautiful buildings and they're making all these promises and they're doing this and doing that. Nigerian officers would say the same thing, but they were knowing they had already been burned. So they were feeling the pressure of, we don't want this anymore, but we don't know how to get away from the money. Uh, And I'm certainly not advocating that America needs to to dole out, you know, untold foreign aid dollars to to buy influence and, and replace China in such a way. But 
there is ways to, uh, you know, to uh, responsibly engage these states so that they can uh, be successful without having to rely on Chinese debt money um, that is further exposes them to risk. And if you cut that off from China, then they don't have the the, the places for their labor to go and work uh, and for their investors to um uh, to to invest and build and build functions, and they're not building potential future uh, naval ports and military bases of which to target us with in the future. And so I think it's a win-win. Uh, it's difficult to communicate to the internal population of China with all of the firewalls. The fact that big tech is uh, more or less cooperative with the uh, government in China, and uh, and and America doesn't have, um, you know, its old. Uh, a robust um, influence operation anymore. We did away with all that at the end of the Cold War. Voice of America is, you know, isn't much more than a website these days. Um, we don't, we don't have these abilities to, 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 uh, to get that message out anymore. Sort of behind the Iron Curtain, if you will. We've got to do better at that. Yes, I don't see the the conflict that you see, Jim. Because the idea that conflict is ever present may be true, but then your your argument that you know we have to work with whomever is out there that's you know that's how we got Hitler you know when Adlai when uh, Clement Attlee came back and said I you know I have peace for our time you know he basically gave you know Adolf Hitler the time he needed to to build the capabilities that were required to devastate Europe. And the Chinese, we know what they want. We know what the Russians want. And there, there's, there's, there's no negotiating with them. There's no, you know, we've tried appeasement. I never we've tried appeasement. Peaceful though, Adam, what I said was we have to learn to get along. We have to find out where things happen. And we've had peace both with China and both with Russia. It, it will happen if we have the right stance. And I'm not saying you know, let's get, you know, have a kumbaya moment, as I, I mentioned earlier, but I am saying we have to know where our strengths lie, make sure that we keep them in check. And then second of all, uh, and second of all, work with them so they understand us. We can, you, you, otherwise the answer is the United States becomes a world dominating power. And we, every world dominating power is, you know, I've told people before, if I was going to be elected, so going back to the election season, okay, here, I'm going to, I'm going to announce mine. I would, I would be happy to be made emperor of North America, anything else, not elected. I want to be, you know, world dominating emperor. And that way, of course, we all know what happens to every emperor that historically was around because they end up losing their head one way or another. And my point is, we can't be dominating there because we can't run their economies, as Kurt is saying. We can't run. We can't run their militaries. We can't drive their culture. They have their own culture. They have their own lives. We need to find out how to make that work together. That's all my my saying is. And sometimes when you do that through power, oh. you can't. But you don't. But you don't yeah. run them. You don't drive them. You've got to have their own existence because that's. That's what the CIA is for. That's what NSA is for is because we don't want to run, you know, we don't run, want to run China. We don't want to occupy China. You know, don't fight a land war in Asia. Somebody said that once. But what you have to, but you can make, you, you create as much chaos in the regime 
to distract the regime from its external and, ambition. And I think that That's chaos is caused do. by starving them of capital from America first and the yes. West later, and uh, and then make them deal with the internal strife that comes in. If they're dealing with internal strife, they don't have time to worry about Taiwan. Um, and so, uh, or, or any of their other issues. And uh, you have to, re- you know, money is power, right? It, it, their military is built off of the economic conditions that they've created. They are, it is a means to an end. Uh, and so I, I think starving that is the most important thing. Conflict will occur because of that. That's the thing, uh, Jim, to your point. We will have conflict if that happens because that's what, you know, that's what desperate, you know, autocrats do. They will lash out first to 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 nationalize the the domestic audience and focus them outward and not inward, and then secondly to try to um, actually you know reopen or reconquer you know and regain losses. So you could you can use Adam's Hitler argument to say exactly that you. You corner them, you give them no out, and then you let them nationalize and, and, and jump out at you. I'm not saying we did that. I'm not saying that was the only thing that happened with Hitler. I'm saying, though, that is you've got to be ready to do that response. So I always look at instability is not good. Instability is not good. If you can get stable, uh, you know, I, I, I use a joke out here when I'm, when I'm talking to people about uh I'll say election procedures, but I'd rather know there's a snake in a bag and reach in and get it than know there not know what's inside that bag and have to reach in and figure out what's in there because at least I know what I have. And when you get instability, you don't know what you're going against. And so you can't build a strategy against something you don't know. That's my point about the instabilities you, and you can't drive human nature. I know CIA thinks they can manage people through psychops, but, but you don't know how people are going to respond. It's not about driving human nature. Uh, we we have a regime that is fundamentally opposed to the world order the United States has created. And they're doing everything they can to topple that world order. I mean, there's no question. There, there's, there's sort of no middle ground. And there, there comes a point at which they say, we think we've got this, you know. Like- that yet not today that you yes. like to say, Curtis, there comes a time when the Chinese say, you know, yes, so you we don't can let do it this. get to that point. That's my point. You can't let it get there. I, yeah. I, don't, I just don't think, I think we're, we're past that. You know, our biggest, you know, probably our biggest fault. There's a very good book and I'm drawing a blank on the name. It's our, probably our biggest mistake was when Mao enticed Kissinger and Nixon into his web. And then he created this vision that China was going to become this liberal democracy, you know, after, you know, if, if America will just help our economy and if America will just, you know, give us the UN seat and if America, and so, you know, Henry Kissinger has wrongfully been given all the, the these accolades over the years, but he's been the the biggest apologist for the Chinese Communist Party in the Western world. Nobody has done more to apologize for the CCP than Henry Kissinger, and nobody has done more to create a false sense that well they're 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 communists, but they're the good communists. 
they're not the good communists. There are no good communists. And Henry Kissinger's been their apologist, and he's been paid handsomely for it. And the simple fact is that there's a misconception that we can deal with the Chinese. The Chinese have wanted that misconception. That's what has fed their rise, what has made the the economic miracle of China possible. And I'm telling you, it's time to wake up. And at some point, we're going to have to deal with the regime, and it's not going to be pretty. And the longer we wait, the more nuclear missiles they build, the more sea-based capability they build. And it only, just like Adolf Hitler, the longer you wait, the worse the fight's going to be. Adam, I want to go back to the lawfare thing you said earlier, that we should be using lawfare against uh, China. And I I would say that I'm not sure we've had a whole lot of success at that. Uh, We know well, we, we, we don't we know use that it. the rest of the world has, though, right? So the Philippines uh, sued uh, the CCP uh, under the uh, Law of the Seas Treaty about over the Spratly Islands. The Hague uh, International Court found in favor um, of the Philippines and actually admonished China for the nine-dash line and, uh, and this idea that they own all of this, to which China's response was basically the diplomatic middle finger. Um, and, uh, and a quote for the Melian dialogue, you know, and, um, uh, the strong will do what they will and the weak will endure what they must. And, uh, and so I, 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 we've seen these kinds of efforts to try to bring Taiwan, I'm sorry, China in line, uh, legally. And they, they only will choose to, to abide by the laws when it benefits them. Um, now on the surface, this all makes sense, right? For a realist power that's sort of you know, work in the system, so to speak. But this is a system that they don't agree with. This is a system that they want to replace. Why would we ever yeah. think that they would support and abide by the rules of the system? And I think this goes because you have, oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to finish this thought. You have abilities to punish it. Well, agreed, but that's only if they're willing to be punished. You know, it seems that only America is willing to, to flog itself. But we see that, um, you know, that, why would we ever think that China would enter into a, a nuclear arms agreement when they won't even follow, um, uh, you know, the, the the rulings against them on other treaties that they violate? So, um, I, I think the lawfare thing is a bit is a bit of a challenge um, in that they're just not willing to play by those rules anymore. So, I'm not sure how you make them how you make them drink the water. Well, I don't think we've ever actually employed all the tools of lawfare. I mean, we really and don't. why do you think that is that? I mean, there's a lot. Why would that be? Well, because the United States has historically been a lot, been willing to let people cheat on agreements, cheat, you know, because we say, well, we're big enough, we're strong enough. So we're willing to accommodate we them. It. We accommodate bad we behavior and, now, and it continues to repeat. We do. And I would say it's time that you don't do that That's right. anymore. I would agree. That's one of the many tools. You know, there's many, you know, economic, you have to be able to, information warfare, to be able all to enforce those. it. That's and right. you're willing, if you're willing well, to you enforce can. it, then, you know, we go back to not having a, a win is not having war because it can be pushed to that point. So I, my, my point again is you'll always have the conflict. You have to know what you're risking and you're putting up in front of you. You can't just impose your will on everybody to make everyone listen. It doesn't work that way. Not in the world. I would rather fight 
Hitler when he's weak than Hitler when he's strong. You know, this isn't a fight against Hitler. This is now, you know, 2020. What is it? 2023? I don't even remember where we are. Yeah, I think we're 2023. That's what happens when you retire, right? You don't even know. You got to sober up when you come to these things. (laughs) Yeah, but, uh, (laughs) but. But, you know, we have we, it's a different world right now. I agree. I, you know, but why didn't we why didn't we trounce the Germans then at the end of World War One? Why didn't we put them in a bucket in World War One and not let them build a military? Oh, wait a minute. We did do that. Hmm. And let's see. what came No, up. we did it. Well, we did it. That's why we fought World War Two. Uh, well, if you know, we the, had, that's the problem. If we had just stopped the Germans from attacking Pearl Harbor, that's we right. have this problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But we'll, we'll refight World War II multiple times. Uh, so, uh, but it's a good All historical right. well, lesson. Guess, uh, hey, Adam, why don't you wrap us up here? Because it's about time. This is good banter. I like going back and forth and feeling around the edges on this. Hopefully, our audience does too. Go well, ahead, Adam. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. As you, uh, the listeners, can see, Curtis and Jim, especially, are often wrong. <laughs> But you can always count on me to have the right view. So just listen to me and ignore them, and you'll always get the right answer. That's why this is the nuclear but, view, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, thanks for joining us again on this episode of the Nuclear View. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.